One of the worst things for a business is when the founder holds on to CEO way too long. There are four stages to a company. There's zero to one, the ability to start something brand new and make sure it works. And then there's one to 10. I would call that product market fit. And then there's 10 to 100 and probably where Ridge is right now, scale a business and hire people and run systems and have vision for that. And then there's 100 to 101 to 102 to 103. Once you get big enough, you actually just kind of reach steady state. And that is a whole different type of CEO. That is the public market CEO. Earnings calls and hitting EPS and that type of shit. Most people can only do one of those things. The very best can do two of those things. The true anomalies can do three of those things. Nobody can do four of those things. We've been able to build a great business because it's a category that nobody cares about. But the challenge of that is the average man, I think, gets a new wallet every seven years and he doesn't know where it comes from. It just shows up. His sister gets it for him or whatever else. Yep. Compare that to a sh like shoes. There's an entire culture built around buying as many shoes as possible, collecting, mm. cherishing. I'll tell you right now, there's like eight people on earth who cherish wallets and collect them and they're our customers and I really appreciate them. Welcome to The Peel, where we explore the world's greatest startup stories. I'm your host, Turner Novak, founder of Banana Capital, the venture capital firm with the deepest wallets. Today, I talk to Sean Frank, the CEO of Ridge, a men's accessory brand that does over nine figures in annual revenue. Ridge launched in 2014 as a wallet with a Kickstarter campaign that raised $266,000. The company hasn't raised a single dollar of outside capital since, and has also expanded into new categories like rings, knives, watches, backpacks, and keys with dozens of more products coming soon. Sean is known in some circles as the Einstein of e-commerce, and he gave us an inside look at running a consumer brand in 2023. We talk about why selling wallets to men is a terrible business, but he's doing it anyways, how Ridge has 80% gross margins, what that means, and why Ridge is one of the top 10 advertisers on Twitter. Sean also gives us a crash course on the men's and women's fashion market, explains why every company needs a core competency, shares all his lessons learned from sponsoring over 5,000 influencers, and shares how FTX and other crypto companies significantly inflated influencer marketing prices in 2021. We also talk about why he's paying a million dollars to hire a creator in-house at Ridge, why Amazon is winding down its private label business and every brand should be on it, and finally, how the Ridge wallet has saved countless customers from bullets and chainsaws. A big thank you to Sean for coming on the show. He was actually sick while we recorded this, but his dry, sarcastic sense of humor still comes through. If you want a crash course on all things e-commerce and brands, keep listening. I think you'll really like this episode. And now let's jump in after a quick word from Paxsmith. Today's episode is brought to you by Paxsmith. Paxsmith is one of our newest investments at Banana. It's an intelligent distributed logistics platform that solves the last mile problem for growing brands. So what does that mean? Instead of using warehouses like a traditional 3PL, it operates a network of small hubs run by small business owners out of their homes, dedicated to your brand. This puts your product much closer to customers, which means cheaper and faster delivery. It's built by a team that comes from companies like Uber, Amazon, and Cruise, and gives you an insane level of transparency into your fulfillment, high-touch customer support, and unique packaging customization that you don't get from a traditional 3PL. Paxsmith just launched with their first brand a few months ago, and they're still working through their early waitlist of over 500 brands. But I have good news. If you're a growing e-com brand on Shopify, listeners of the Peel can head to paxsmith.io slash banana, P-A-C-K-S-M-I-T-H dot I-O slash banana to jump to the top of the waitlist, and they'll see if your brand is a good fit to be an early customer. Grab a link in the show notes. Thank you, Paxsmith. And now 
Let's talk to Sean at Ridge. Sean, how's it going? Thanks for joining me today. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. <laughs> I'm very excited to have you on. I think you're in a really interesting spot. You run a direct consumer brand. It's a men's wallet company. And I think I've heard you say that both are not the best spaces to be operating a business in. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah, I think by default, all of us are D2C brands, but I will just caveat that it's way better just to call it a brand, right? I think I think D2C has some stink on it. It was proven to just be a way to sell things and not the identity of a company. So yes, it is, it is a brand. And then we are mostly a men's wallet company. I would like to be a wallet company and then I would like to be an accessories brand because there are no wallet companies. It is a horrible category to be in, but we have made a niche for ourselves in it. So why is it so tricky running a men's wallet brand? When was the last time you bought a wallet? Personally, I don't know if I've ever bought a wallet. It's always been someone else that buys me one. And it was when I lost it. I think I only buy a new one when I lose the other one. Yeah, you you just summarized the challenge of running my company is that <laughs> it's a product category nobody cares about. And if you ever worked in traditional fashion, so like department stores or fashion brands, there's a totem pole. So if you are at Gucci, uh, women's runway is the top. And then Maybe it's, you know, women's handbags and then it's men's runway. And at the very, very bottom of the totem pole is men's accessories. It's it's literally like where they put people that they want to quit. That's just nobody cares about it. <laughs> so <laughs> we've been able to build a great business because it's a category that nobody cares about. But the challenge of that is the average man, I think, gets a new wallet every seven years and he doesn't know where it comes from. It just shows up. His sister gets it for him or whatever else. <laughs> yep. Compare that to a sh like shoes. There's an entire culture built around buying as many shoes as possible, collecting, mm -hmm. cherishing. I'll tell you right now, there's like eight people on earth who cherish wallets and collect them. And there are customers and I really appreciate them. Well, okay. So how big are you guys today then? I've seen the numbers like nine figures in revenue. How do you guys talk about now? How big is the company? Yeah, that's probably the general statement we have. And what that means is we'll do over a hundred million dollars this year. We did over a hundred million dollars last year and we're still growing mid to high double digits every single year. The goal is, I mean, eventually we'll get to a billion a year in revenue. And that sounds like a really crazy number, but Yeti does a billion a year in water bottles alone. And Coach is a very large, they're, they're public trade under tapestry. They just bought a company called uh, Michael Kors. They also own Valentino and a bunch of other stuff. But Coach by itself does $6 billion a year in accessories and they have a billion dollar a year men's accessories business. So it is not uncommon for accessories brands to get to a billion a year in revenue. And that's the very bottom of this totem pole that you talked about too. I mean, the small leather good market, which does include probably fine handbags, but it's a, I mean, it's a hundred billion TAM. It's crazy. It's bigger than the movie industry. There's a lot of people buying small leather goods, but to answer your question, yeah, Ridges, we call it a, a mid figure or mid nine figure brand. We're, we're working on getting to 10. And then once I hit it, you'll know, cause I'll brag about it. We'll have you back on when you hit 10. So do you know why so many people, like, why is it a hundred billion dollar market, just small leather goods? People like to buy stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you're talking leather, you're talking handbags, you're talking wallets, you're talking phone cases, belts. I mean, just whatever accessories. And the question you get at is like, why is the fashion industry so big? It's like, we could all just wear black t-shirts and black pants and wear slippers. But yeah, I don't know, man. People, people have been decorating themselves forever. And I just listened to a TikTok, which is really interesting that, you know, we think of clothing in 
the prehistoric times as being like for warmth or protection, but it actually was probably first used just as ornamentation. The first person to put clothes on was probably just trying to show off how cool they looked and wasn't actually trying to keep warm. So it's an inherent piece of human behavior is this ability to decorate and fashion yourself. So that's why I sell wallets, I guess. (laughs) The one that no one sees, you keep it in your pocket all day. It's very unsexy. The largest true wallet company no one's ever heard of, they're called Randa. They do like $4 billion a year in revenue, but everyone focuses on SaaS companies or whatever else. You know how hard it is to do $4 billion a year in revenue? Like consumers, a pretty good way to do it. That's fair. Well, your market is just, you know, every human, right? I mean, every dude buys a wallet. Maybe there's not that many competitors because we talked about it's a tough business. What did the margins look like on a typical, maybe brand, maybe this is like D2C brand, maybe this is a wallet company. Like what are the big costs? And then what are the ways you actually have a profitable business? Are there certain things like tricks you really got to figure out? First, let's define what margin we're talking about, right? Because when people say margin, they have an idea in their head, but we should just make sure we're speaking the same language. So there is the cost to produce a good, there is the cost to produce a good and get it to this country, and there's the cost to produce the good, get it to this country, and then get it to a consumer, right? And inside of that final one, do you include payment processing? Because that's two points uh, of margin that you just can't get back, right? No matter how you want to get around it, Shopify is getting their slice and Visa and MasterCard are getting their slice, right? Yeah. What companies do is they have gross margin, which is typically all of those things above the fold. And a company like Yeti is at 56%. A company like Nike is at 50% or whatever, right? So those are, those are landed to consumer costs. So, you know, the cost to ship something to a consumer is typically 10% of revenue or whatever. Returns and exchanges have to be included. Which those can be high too. Those can be like 10, 15% in some cases also. Women's fashion this season is hitting 50% return rates. That's what we're hearing. Really? The home showroom is is really becoming a trend in women's fashion. Hmm. Wallets, we got like a 4% return rate. Almost nobody's <laughs> returning a wallet. The one thing you have going for you. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so our our gross margin tends to be in, in the 80%. That's best in class up there with Hermes or, or any of the true luxury brands. The other thing I'll say is about the, the, the small other good market, I believe, and fact check me on this, the most profitable company trading on the S&P with a product or service. So, so we're moving out financial arbitrage, things that could be trading like, like Bitcoin exchanges or whatever else. The most profitable product focused company on the S&P is Hermes. I believe their EBITDA mar- margin is 40%. There's a lot of money to be made in luxury, a lot of money to be made in small other goods, as long as you yeah. can crack it. But yeah, we're in the 80% margins. So that's gross margin. And then, I mean, just knowing your CMO, Connor, me and him have been talking about paid ads for like years. I mean, that's kind of how I think I first met him was maybe talking about Snapchat ads way back when they launched them. Is that where you guys spend a lot then on performance marketing? Yeah, there's no free lunch, right? So either either you have low gross margin because your product is a value or a commodity, or you spend that money on marketing. Apple only spends 5% on marketing, but it's because they have a very competitive product that people have to have. So yes, we try to run the business at a 3x MER. So for every dollar in revenue, uh, 33 cents is going to uh, the great blue beast of Meta. Is it mostly meta then? Meta's on top. I mean, there was a couple of years where it was really, it was really shaky and hitting the bottom, but, uh, but no, yeah, Meta's definitely on top. But you know, it's a duopoly for a reason. Google's got a big chunk of that. And then there's some smaller players. I'm a big Twitter advertiser. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the top 10 Twitter advertisers, I think. That's what they told me. So that's interesting because I, I know a couple of people that previously and also currently run a lot of Twitter ads. What do you like about Twitter ads right now? They are cheap. 
So okay, that's what I've heard. I mean, I've seen like you get a million impressions from like a couple bucks or something. And there's just there's a a certain group of users you can only reach on Twitter, just like Snapchat. We were the first advertiser on Snapchat, and there's some people who that's their that's their screen time. If you want to reach them on digital channels, that's the only place to reach them. And and Twitter probably has more users like that than anywhere else, right? Like if you want to reach a, a Twitter user, they're not opening Instagram ten times a day. They're not opening TikTok ten times a day. They're just scrolling, doom scrolling Twitter. And we got to get everyone a wallet. So we got to hit everybody on earth. I've heard the argument for people who think Twitter is a good platform is that since it's so primarily text based, the audience just skews slightly like higher income, maybe a little bit older or something like it just they can it, read. They can read. Yeah. You don't know if your TikTok uh, ad is being served to someone who knows how to read. Yeah. They're adults who know how to read. Yeah. So you're unique in the sense of you are the first person I've had in this podcast that is not actually the founder of the company. You're one, you're the CEO, you're running it. What's kind of the story with Ridge? Can you really quick maybe explain the product really quick and then also, you know, kind of the story behind how it all got started? It's a great product. So what what are we talking about? It's it's a small metal minimalist, mostly men's wallet. I would love to sell some wallets to women. So if any women are watching, just go ahead and go to ridge.com. You can buy one for yourself. Mostly we've advertised to, to men in the past. Well, wh- wh- how did it start? Daniel and his dad made a wallet. Daniel was going to, so those are two original founders. Yep. He was going to like Santa Barbara and he had like, he would just like wrap his cards in a rubber band and his dad would make fun of him. And he's like, okay, fuck it. I'll make a wallet. They made a prototype. They put it on Kickstarter, ends up, you know, raising a couple hundred thousand dollars and it ends up being, you know, it's the golden era of Kickstarter, golden era of Facebook ads. So like, mm. you know, they have a pretty sophisticated business doing a couple million dollars a year when I meet them. And they didn't want to hire anybody. That was like a company culture thing for them. It was, so it was just them two. And their best friend, uh, Austin. So there's, those are the three original founders of Ridge. So father, son, best friend. Then they, they bring on their other best friend, Paul. Oh, no, sorry, Brett, as, as their first employee. So they got four people okay. when I meet them. They specifically do not want to hire or manage anybody. So me and Connor have a digital marketing agency in 2016. I think, they, I think Ridge did $8 million that year. And I'm like, hey, you need to do Facebook and creative and search and customer service and ops. And they're like, we don't want to do any of that shit. We'll pay you to do it. And that works out great for a couple of years. In 2018 or whatever, I'm charging them like a quarter million dollars a month. And at a certain point, they're like, hey, let's just become one company. Were they your biggest client at the time? They were about half my agency revenue. So they were our biggest client and our only (laughs) legitimate client. We we had probably- We had mean? like, well, we had like 10 clients and, and you know, you, you've never heard of any of them. And I, I, I say that in jest, you know, there was, there was a tech company called Biostrap. We did some consulting for uh, some VC backed companies. And then towards the end of the agency, what we actually ended up doing, we were the agency of record for crowdfunding campaigns. So like Start Engine, Seed Invest, a couple other ones, like a company like Miso Robotics would want to raise money. They would come to us for marketing help or whatever else. Oh, I've seen those kind of ads before. Yeah. Where it's like, Hey, Miso Robotics is doing this, you know, click the link, invest in the company. One of those kind of concepts. Yeah. So we were, we were the marketing engine behind those companies. That's what we did pre-merger. But truthfully, at the time, I was pretty not involved in that. There's a couple other guys in the agency and I was really just focused on the Ridge relationship. So we merged, me and Connor took equity stakes and then we sold the agency to the guys who were running the equity crowdfunding piece. So they bought the agency out for me and Connor. They went to go do their own thing and then they've since sold the agency again. They sold it to 
a big tech company called Dealmaker in Canada that just does equity crowdfunding campaigns. So that's spun off doing its own thing. Me and Connor come in-house at Ridge. Yeah, I'm not a founder, but I'm the CEO. And my pushback for the whole audience is, if you're a founder, why do you think you're good at running your business? It's so rare to have these two skills, the ability to start something brand new and push it to product market fit and make sure it works. And then also scale a business and hire people and run systems and have vision for that. The people who can do both, they're Steve Jobs, they're Mark Zuckerberg, and that's about it, right? And if you're delusional enough to think that you're amazing at both of those things, you're either a generational talent or you're probably bad at one of them, right? And I'm not saying Daniel was a bad CEO or anything. I mean, he's still in the business or whatever. He just, he's definitely not passionate about what it takes to get a company to 100 million or 500 million or whatever else. He's a product guy through and through, right? Like he's made a series of amazing, good selling products. And that's what he's passionate about spending his time in. The reality is when you're a CEO, a product ends up being smaller and smaller percentages of your time. It's way more about meetings and public personas and company vision and hiring and whatever else. And you just talked about like he didn't want to hire anyone. I think it's a totally fair thing to do. Question on that though, if I'm a you know founder CEO of a company thinking about bringing someone else on to help me run the company, what kind of things do you think I should think about? Or were there any things that you guys really talked through and had to figure out and good processes put in place to kind of make that transition? We had like a six-year interview process or whatever. <laughs> like we worked together for years running the agency business through a lot of internal struggle, right? I think when we merged, Ridge was doing 30 million a year or whatever. So from like single millions, probably mid millions when I met them, five or whatever, to eight million that first full year to 30 when, when we merged. It's just there was a lot of growing pains that we had to work to. So look, it's, I mean, you can go through an executive recruiter and you can get a ton of very talented executives who want to come be CEOs. Or you can hire someone as a COO or hire someone as a president or hire someone as a VP and spend two years mentoring them to take over your business or hire a chief of staff, make that person literally be your second brain, follow you through the entire process. And then, and then you give them the, the reins as the president because they know exactly how you think and how you want it to operate. I just think one of the worst things for a business is when the founder holds on to CEO to way too long. And I think because in the past 10 years, we've just been idolizing the founder CEO role. And that's what all the media has been about like this maverick coming in like and, and shaking things up. I just, that's just not really how the, how the world works. And w what I'll say, the last thing about this is that there are four stages to a company, right? There's zero to one, right? That is starting the company and like actually getting that shit in place, the formation documents and making and launching the first product. And then there's one to 10, which is, you know, I would call that product market fit. And then there's 10 to a hundred, right? And that is actual scaling and probably where Ridge is right now. And then there's 100 to 101 to 102 to 103. Once you get big enough, you actually just kind of reach steady state. And that is a whole different type of CEO. That is the public market CEO. That is earnings calls and hitting EPS and that type of shit. I think most people can only do one of those things. The very best can do two of those things. The true anomalies can do three of those things. Nobody can do four of those things. Mark Zuckerberg isn't actually the 101 to 102 to 103. He has a CFO and he had Sheryl Sandberg actually running shit at that steady state. And I know I can't do that. I'm, I am just a 10 to 100 and maybe a one to 10. I'm just two mm. of those things, right? So anyway, that's, that's my thought process on founders not being CEOs.
Yeah. I mean, I think it happens all the time. Basically every business, if it lasts long enough time, the founder will no longer be the CEO. The longer it gets, more likely. Why did you join? Like, was there a thought process where you're like, I want to do this. I want to sell wallets. <laughs> well, I was already selling wallets, right? At the agency days. So that was that was our main function was selling wallets. No, the reality is it's really hard to, to make a meaningful exit off an agency business, right? Mm-hmm. Like the agency was probably doing 5 million a year in revenue. I had a couple of co-founders of the agency. Like, you know, we were all making a a decent living. Agency business have good margins because it's just a people business. So let's say I was 25 making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year off my agency business. It's so hard to sell agencies. I, I could hustle and grind and maybe I can work out a sale where I get a million or $2 million or whatever. When you have the opportunity to merge with Ridge, me and Connor own meaningful stakes of equity in this business, right? It's basically like we founded it and got diluted by investors. That's that's the way yeah. I talk about it. Same thing, yeah. Yeah, like because you know, Ridge is privately held. We're bootstrap. So like I own just as much as if I was the founder and got diluted. That's the way I look at it. If we're optimizing for personal net worth outcomes, way easier to sell Ridge than it is an agency. So that's why we made that decision. And dude, it was totally better. I wasn't especially good at running an agency business. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a process oriented guy. I was the CEO of the agency. So it was really just a sales role and I'm not very good at sales. So what should somebody think of if they're looking at hiring an agency? What's the process? I don't know how you think about what, what's a good agency and what should people look for? what type of agency are you trying to hire? So I I think you should identify Mm -hmm. that first. And my thought process has always been you shouldn't outsource things that should be core competencies. There are on-demand engineering firms and Apple doesn't use them because engineering is a core competency. So what type of company are you? And for a D2C brand, right? I, you know, that is basically what we are, even though I hate the term. For a D2C brand, paid media is your engineering. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you are a marketing company. You're a media company. That's what you are. So you shouldn't outsource that. You should get good at that internally. And if you can't or won't, then you deserve to go out of business, right? Now, if you're a logistics company, your core competency is logistics. You should outsource your paid media because it does not matter if you're good at that or not. What matters is you can deliver packages on time, right? So first identify what you're actually trying to outsource. If you're a D2C brand listening to this and you currently outsource your paid media, all of it completely, I think that's a mistake. But you should totally outsource a lot of your creative, right? It's really hard to make high quality creative and there's agencies in the world that do that. Or maybe you should outsource your web development because that's not a core competency, right? You don't need to know how to web develop. What you need to know is how to make good ads that convert and and how to run Facebook ads or whatever. So anyway, how how do you choose an agency that's good? Uh, I always look for the one core metric is client tenure. So if clients are sticking around and growing with them for a long time, the aggregate client tenure, not just one or two flagship clients that stick around, but like, is their average client staying for over a year? That means that they're selective about who they bring on and they're good at retaining the people they bring on. So that's the one core metric to look at. And that probably means that they're making their clients money because they're sticking with them. Right. You don't lose money for a year for fun. One thing I'm super curious about then for Ridge, how do you guys do your production when you talk about competitive advantage? You said your competitive advantage is the marketing. Do you guys do your production you know, overseas in the US? How do you design products? I know maybe we can get into you've launched a couple new ones. Uh, what does your kind of manufacturing or product stack kind of look like? So production, meaning the actual manufacturing of goods. We just bought a factory in Arizona. So we are onshoring a lot of our production right now. And that's a new thing? Yeah. I mean, I think I bought the building last week. So this is this is breaking news. Yeah, break breaking news. I've talked about it a little bit, like just on Twitter or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah. So we're currently onshoring a lot of our production. And 
how do we think about new products and categories? So we launched rings, men's wedding bands. That's been like the, the surprise success of the year. It's it's already an eight-figure business for us and it's nine months old or whatever. So what we thought about was when the pandemic happened, women's engagement rings went online very quick. That was a trend that's always been happening, but Pinterest has really driven online adoption. <laughs> Women go on there and just like choose out their engagement ring and then they find it online and they buy it or whatever. My wife just sent me a link. She's like, buy me this. And men's engagement ring shopping or men's wedding bands were typically bought at point of sale at a jewelry store. And it was like the way, the way jewelry stores made all of their money. It was just an upsell. It was like, hey, here's $8,000 you're going to spend on a women's ring. Here's a men's ring. It's $1,000. And then they, the joke would just be like, it's a lot cheaper, right? And like, they would just buy it. Even if it was a $15 ring, they would spend $1,000 on it. Cause like comparatively, it's just a lot cheaper. You didn't even think yeah. about it. So as women's engagement ring shopping went online, men's engagement ring shopping didn't go anywhere. <laughs> there was really? just, there was the, yeah. There was just like a massive hole where like men didn't really know where to buy rings. And there's a couple DTC competitors who were doing it, but we pushed hard into it and uh, we're definitely reaching a huge swath of consumers who are super stoked to buy men's wedding bands online. And we go above and beyond to like, you know, they're reasonably priced. There's like a crazy warranty where you can lose it twice and we'll still give you another one. So it's, we call mm. it never lost forever fit protection. The core focus of the business the next couple of years is rapid product development. I do not want mm. to be a wallet company anymore. Whatever coach sells, we're going to sell. So it's it's a push to be a men's accessories brand. So you're going to see us get into 15 new product categories in the next couple of years. I'm spending a ton of money to do that. So that's how we think about product. And then is it still core competency is just very good at performance marketing? Yeah. We're trying to develop more core competencies, right? We've always been okay. product first and marketing first. Those two things have led the entire company. The rest of the company actually is set up just to protect those two things, making sure we're making the best thing mm. we can make. And we can make sure we spend as many dollars on marketing as possible, like a very simple supply chain, a very like optimized supply chain. But we're, we're, we're slowly making the rest of the company more complex so we can have additional first principle core competencies. When I think about the landscape of men's accessories. I don't know if I've ever seen like a coach ad. I guess they like their strategy seems to be more of partnerships, high end luxury type stuff. I guess their thing is not running Facebook and Google ads, at least not as a core competency. So is that like the opening in the space? Yeah, they, they have a ton of stores. I mean, I think they have like a thousand plus stores or whatever. I mean, really, their men's business is just a proxy of a large women's business, right? So they have a $5 billion a year women's accessory line, and they want those female customers to buy the men's stuff as gifts for their men in their life. And then hopefully those men come back and buy totes and slings and backpacks or whatever else. But it's a, it's a big gifting business, I think. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that they're amazing at Facebook ads by any means, but none of the luxury yeah. brands are, right? I think Coach is considered a mid-luxury brand. They're definitely approachable luxury. They're not they're not the Gucci's of the world or, or the Chanel's of the world. They're definitely like yeah. a, a tier below, but they are an American accessories brand with a huge men's business. So that's who we're going after. So then typically these men's, the men's business seems like a high margin kind of bolt-on product, really, if we're going to like kind of dissect it. Is that ultimately what it is for a lot of these women's brands that expand into men's? Yeah, they definitely don't care about it. Like it's definitely not the primary focus, right? Like, and 
typically you hear about brands talk about the other thing, right? That like like women are an underserved market for like the pink tax and razors. It's just a men's razor they made pink. That dichotomy cuts both ways, where there's totally underserved men's markets. We call it the testosterone tax, where like men are willing to pay more for a more men's version of something, a more premium version of something, a more, I mean, authentic version. And like, I think Huckberry as a website exists just for this, or Filson the brand exists just for this. It's like men's stuff for guys. Almost in contrast to this is, and dude, I don't know if your audience is going to be super bored talking about women's fashion for fucking an hour, <laughs> but my background, I used to work in, like I've worked for Ralph Lauren, I've worked for Theory, I've worked for fashion brands. And if you look at that world, very common for a men's first brand or a men's first designer to get into women's, right? Brooks mm-hmm. Brothers did this, Ralph Lauren did this. I mean, there's countless examples of making stuff for men, then making stuff for women's. And it's very rare to find a female designer making stuff for men, carrying her name on the on the label, or a women's first brand getting into men's. Lululemon is the only good example of a women's first brand, right? Launching with women's and then getting into men successfully. Maybe we'll see more of that in the future, but that is, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about like the psychology of men, or the patriarchy or whatever else, very few men would will wear women designer labels, right? Mm. I think it's becoming maybe more common now, but typically like, you know, even Tom Ford, right? Like, or a lot of these heads of these, these luxury fashion houses are men first. All of that to say is we're hoping that by, by making elevated masculine first things, we can, we can really serve that audience, right? So instead of a guy, you know, being gifted a coach wallet, like maybe he'll prefer an opt-in to the Ridge wallet or instead of the LVMH, mm-hmm. he'll prefer an opt-in to the Ridge wallet. And we can build an ecosystem of accessories around that. And hopefully by going male first, we can follow the great designers ahead of us and work our way backwards into, into some sort of a women's line, right? Ralph Lauren did it. Brooks Brothers did it. Hopefully we can do it. It's such your market. The goalposts are a lot probably further out than what someone would think right now. It's a big market. I mean, everyone, everyone wants to build, you know, Uber or whatever. And it's like, damn, that's super fucking hard. I'm just going to try to sell wallets to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I did not realize you guys had purchased a factory. What was that process like? Can you kind of talk us through just how that came about and why you did it? Yeah. So Trump passed tariffs in 2016, and that kind of started this whole decoupling of the US and China from a manufacturing standpoint. And we looked at opening a factory in the US in February 2020. We had quotes. We had everything ready to go. And it was an old automobile factory up in Wisconsin. And then about a, about a month later, COVID hits and that factory is like, hey, we're making PPE now. We don't want to talk to you anymore, right? So the whole world got really crazy. And then Trump stopped being president. Biden comes in. He keeps the all of the same tariffs. He did not remove the tariffs. So the Trump era tariffs have existed throughout Biden and have only... They've only added more, I think. So we're in a world where the decoupling of China manufacturing is is here, and I think it's going to continue to ramp up. We restarted those plans. We were working with a company called FTS USA. They are the premier watchmaker in the United States. So if you buy any US-made watch or any US-made movement, it's probably coming from them. And really nice guy, Kunal, he's running the whole thing. We were doing some business with him, and I was like, hey, dude, can I just buy some shares in your business. So we we bought 30% of FTS USA. This is Ridge or you personally? Ridge. So yeah. So R- Ridge is on the cap table of FTS USA as a, I think we're like an equal shareholder to him and his co-founder or whatever. So we just wanted a seat at the table. 
And then part of that is like, okay, cool. Well, we're shareholders. Like, what do you need from us? And he's like, well, my lease is coming up in my building. It'd be really sick if we had our building that we could do whatever we wanted to. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, we'll buy you a building. So we bought, we bought a building in Arizona mm-hmm. and he's, he's moving into it right now. And with that, part of us buying it was the idea is that you should just own more of your supply chain. So if like you're buying raw goods from China, maybe you should own some shares in that business. And if you're buying assembly in the United States, maybe you should own shares in that business. So we just tried to buy up and down so that if I spend a dollar on manufacturing, I'm getting like a 10, 10 cent dividend. That's that's my goal is to start getting paid dividends off my, my manufacturing investment. And so anyway, yeah, I own shares in FTSUSA. We bought a factory for them and now we submitted a million unit PO. So they're going to start making a million wallets for us. And the goal is by 2025, all of our wallets are made here, but that's a long road. So you got to give me a couple of years to see how it goes. I feel like you've mentioned tens of millions of wallets a year or something, how, or I, maybe that's not true. How many wallets do you sell per year? A few million. So you're currently going to do about maybe we'll say 25, 50%, but you want to get to about 100% production here. Yes. And then how did you guys initially do your production when the company started? I'm assuming the Kickstarter was kind of like bespoke. I'm envisioning get a work table, like crafting this leather thing or. Yeah. So Daniel in college, him and our, our first employee, Brett, who's also on the cap table. Brett was like a world famous rock band drummer. So remember the game rock band? Okay. Yep. Yeah. So he had like, he had like high scores. He had records. Like he had a YouTube following. Mm. And so Dan, Daniel was like, we should make rock band drum kit mods and we should sell those. So that was the, that was how they got into Chinese manufacturing. They would like make it out of metal and like make it really cool. And they would, I mean, they probably did a couple hundred thousand dollars selling those in college. Okay. So these are like, if you, if you, you see any of those like off brand game controller type things, it was that concept, but for rock band drums. Well, so you would still have to buy the rock band drum kit you had, but so this was, this was for premium rock band drummers. So if you wanted like metal instead of plastic and if you wanted you know a really a more smooth drumming experience they they found they found a manufacturer in china a guy named jackie and then when the wallet thing came out daniel was like hey can you make all these wallets for us and he figured out a way to make them so that's how the first order got submitted and i think you guys sold like five thousand or something was with the number i saw in the kickstarter the first one oh yeah I, I, I don't remember that was before my time are you still working with jackie in china a little bit as you think about all these new products that are launching, is the idea, again, leverage the manufacturing facility as much as you can? It just depends on what we're making, right? So it'd be sick if by 2030, everything we make can be made here in the US. But the first thing is quality. So we're, wherever we have to go to make the best thing, that's where we'll yep. go first. So like a lot of carbon fiber comes from Japan. That's just where it's going to come from because they make the best carbon fiber. I don't know why. But yeah, like, you know, we're going to get into watches. We're going to get into knives. I think we're going to do US assembly for those things. Interesting. Okay. And then you guys have never really raised outside capital. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we've never raised any money at all. But I've heard you say before, you wish that you did or you've, you know, you've thought about how the world would be different. Can you explain that? Yeah, like now it's like this chess beating thing where people are like, we're bootstrapped. Like we've never raised a dollar, right? And it's like, we just, nobody would give us money. Like, <laughs> like it would have been cool. Like I would, it would have made life a lot easier. Maybe the company would be ruined by now if we did it, but it's not like we had the option. I guess that's what I'm trying to point out. It's not like people were beating down our door. Like we just need to own shares of the wallet company. It's like, look, we're successful despite all that, but we never, we were never given the choice. And I think given the choice, yeah, we totally might have did it. Now I understand the fallacy in it, but it's not like I'm better than other entrepreneurs because we didn't do it. It's like, yeah, we just, the entire company has no fucking connections. We were all totally broke. Like we all 
just made the company ourselves. Like Daniel's dad was a special ed teacher for 30 years in California. Like the motherfucker was not rolling in money. Like yeah. <laughs> it's like me, me and Connor, we were dead broke. <laughs> we were fucking 20 <laughs> years old. And we had me and Connor used to, so I didn't own a car. Connor got a car from his dad that was like a 1991 Honda Civic that like the rust was, it was rusty, barely worked. We would take that to client meetings. Like that's how we closed <laughs> all of our clients. That's amazing. Yeah. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is we don't come from a world where we could have gotten venture capital. It would have been sick, but yeah, nobody was trying to give us money. Yeah. Do you think there were things then that you did right just in terms of order of operations of scale up? Because I think maybe the common kind of dogma is it was a mistake to or raise so much venture capital. Like, are, are there places you think that you really did things right? There's two. We made money the entire time because we couldn't not make money. If we had one year of losing money, we would have gone out of business. That's that's a good thing. It's good to make money. Uh, what it taught us is that everyone, everyone else was high on fucking fumes. They were straight up smelling glue and we we're just sitting there being like, no, companies are supposed to make money. It's like, we're not actually doing something crazy. We're just doing exactly what Coach does. We're selling wallets. So we have to figure out a way to make a profit doing this. And then the second one is we grew at a tempered pace. I think physical good companies should never double, right? We had a couple of years where we did double, but you should never double. You should just aim for mid-teens you know, or, or mid-double digits growth. That's the way these companies are built. And what I point to is Lululemon, I think the most growth they've ever had in one year since being public is 25%. So Lululemon is worth $40 billion. They are worth more than Honda. Okay. The leggings that the people are wearing, that company is more valuable than Honda. You should just try to do what they did. 25% growth is pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm not an expert on this business, but I was kind of just looking into Crocs lately. It's like they sell hunks of plastic for like 80 bucks. I mean, it's an insane business, right? Like, I don't know how much those cost, but selling those things for 80, 100 bucks is, it's a good business, good margins. They're a great example of a functional company that has a fashion element. Crocs are a functional shoe. People love them for the comfort level or for the off, off-road off mode or whatever, the sport <laughs> mode. Yeah, Pe- People love those. But if you become fashionable, your sales just go through the fucking roof. So, which is insane that Crocs are seen as fashionable. I I just think that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know how they pulled it off, but what I'm really happy and joyous about with like the VC crash and the tech crash and the crypto crash, all these different crashes that are happening, it's horrible when people lose all their money. Like that's that's not that's something to revel in. But like what is what is joyous about it is that like all of those people can now have to look at real companies and understand like what makes them work, right? And it's like, oh yeah, you know, Crocs, yeah, they're ugly and they're stupid or whatever, but people like them and they buy them. And it's like, let's go back to the core fundamental reason we're doing this is to make things people enjoy. I'm trying to say is, yeah, Crocs is a great company. I love that they're ugly. I love people like them. That's that's beautiful. Good for them. Yeah. I remember two years ago, you said something like you're doing $2 million a year in revenue per employee. Is that still the case? Yeah, it's probably higher this year. That's insane. I mean, you look at some of the best businesses you know, or what people would herald as some of the best businesses, a couple hundred K or a million a year in revenue per employee. What do you, what's the secret that you guys have that can get it so high per employee? We don't have a warehouse, so we use it through PL, so it's not included in that number. <laughs> so. so it's cheating. If you look at Amazon, it's like, well, yeah, they have like a million warehouse staff. So it's really hard for that number to be high. And if you look at Apple, they have a million store staff, store personnel. So it's really hard for it to be that high. So more or less, we are just an HQ. So it'd be better to compare apples to apples to whatever their HQ numbers are. But if we're just talking headlines, yeah, it's a couple million bucks per person. And that's how we get there. 
What does the tech stack kind of look like at Ridge today? Like any main products you guys use, like operating system, selling online, website, how you guys do 3PL, all that kind of stuff? It's nothing special. We're a Shopify merchant. So orders go on our website that's hosted by Shopify. Those orders hit Shopify and then they get passed to our warehouse via an ERP system called Fulfill. So Fulfill does warehouse management, it does order splitting, all that type of stuff. Then the 3PL gets the order, they ship the consumers. We have A-B testing software. We have, you know, you, you can go a layer deeper, like what does our reviews do? But I mean, I fundamentally, I think that is a mistake of way too many Shopify merchants analyzing the tech stack like you're a tech business and you are not. All of your time should be spent on two buckets. It is, is the product good and do people like it? And how do I sell it to people? Everything else should basically be disregarded. We're pretty simple. And if you want to get more in depth in the stack, happy to. Like, what's our SMS solution? It's like, I think none of that shit matters. So what do you think are some of the big problems then just broadly that D2C brands are facing? Like, is it marketing's too expensive, logistics too expensive, their products suck? We can be as polite or as non-polite as we'd like. But what's kind of the big problems that you think most brands are facing nowadays? You could put them in two buckets. It's people who raised money and people who didn't. So they have different problems. If you raise money, you've raised money on a business model that cannot support venture returns. That is the reality. Why can't it support venture returns? Is because ultimately you are a fashion company and fashion companies are cyclical in nature. A lot of fashion companies trade at less than one quarter of revenue. Express, Super Dry Japan, these are companies that were staples of the 2000s who are public right now who trade at less than one quarter of revenue. Fossil, the watch company, all of these businesses. Gap does like $16 billion a year in revenue. So they're a massive revenue player, right? They I think they're worth $4 billion right now. If you are a fashion company, I'm going to point to Everlane, right? I'm not picking them. I don't know anybody there. But if you're a fashion company, you've raised money in a business that cannot support that. And that actually is, is the antithesis of what type of business you should be building. You should be building a Lululemon that every year you can put up 25% growth with amazing profit, right? Because it's not like there can't be venture level returns in fashion companies. Companies, it just it requires a different muscle to build. Hermes, like I said, 40% EBITDA margins, better than any software company, and they are worth $200 billion. They're worth more than Uber, right? Or LVMH is worth more than Walmart. These amazing, huge companies can be built. It just requires a different muscle. It requires generational thinking. The Hermes Corporation is still mostly owned by one family that's owned them for a hundred years. Anyway, if you raise money, you have a whole different fucking problem that like you just are set up for failure. Okay, so there's no winning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have okay outcomes, right? Like Warby Parker is public, right? They raised money and they're public. The the challenge there is every terminology that you use in a tech company just cannot apply for Warby Parker because do they have product market fit? It's like everyone, yeah, day one they have it. People have glasses, right? But can you have product market fit to get 100% of the market like a Slack can or like an Uber can? The answer is no, because it's a fashion business. The most you can ever get is 20% of the market. Or you have to be Luxottica and you have to own like a hundred different fucking brands if you want 50% of the market. It just, it, it doesn't work the same way. And then the other thing is like the whole idea that everyone's going to own equity and that you're going to raise money and there's going to be like a preference stack. It's like, yeah, all of those preference stacks are underwater. And if you're an employee at, at Away or Outdoor Voices or Warby Parker, your stocks are fucked. It's worth nothing. Your stock options are worth nothing. So there's that. 
it's it's a very difficult outcome if you've raised money. And if you haven't raised money, it's just like, oh yeah, I'll like you have to just deal with normal boom and bust cycles, right? And it's like e-commerce had a huge boom cycle over COVID, over the pandemic, over lockdowns. Yeah. It was artificially inflated. Now you have to go through the bust cycle. And we're still in the bust cycle that like there's less dollars being spent online year over year as a percentage of GDP. So there's less dollars for you to win over. So it's more competition for less money. But another boom cycle will happen because that's just the way consumer spending works. You've said before, you think the next three years will be pretty good in consumer. Can you kind of explain that? We've had a really good year this year. I know that's that's less common. There was revenge shopping IRL, so travel spending, whatever else, like Taylor Swift tickets going for five grand or whatever, like that's taken a disproportionate share of e-commerce dollars. So e-commerce penetration is down year over year because of that. But as that normalizes again, it's like people love online shopping. Online shopping is here to stay. It's going to win over more and more percentage. And we're back to where we would normally be if COVID didn't happen. And I think we're going to start accelerating again. So I think we're going to see rapid acceleration of e-commerce penetration. And we'll get to 20%. We'll get to 22% of total transactions happening online. And when that happens, it's just we're in another boom cycle. Like you just have wind at your back. It's built in 10% year over year growth. I think that happens again in 2024. Yeah. What do you think is kind of like the ceiling for e-commerce? Like, will we ever hit 50% of all transactions or, and I, maybe I'm weird in the sense where I bucket, like if you're in Walmart and you're doing self-checkout, like from your phone in the store, is that technically e-commerce because it's like a digital transaction versus actually like point of sale? I think, I think if you got to get in your car, it counts as in store. So I, I don't care if you're doing click and pick up. I, that's in store to me. But will we ever hit to 50%? We have to identify what percentage of the bucket can even go online. We, are you going to buy houses online? Are you going to buy cars online? Are you going to buy groceries online? Like those are, those yeah. are the three biggest. And then after that, it's like, are you going to buy gas online? If the world's electric cars and it's Tesla and you can click online and, and you, and you live in, I don't know, maybe there's a world that bucket goes online, but that's like a huge chunk. So I don't think we'll ever get to 50% because like I don't want to throw out false percentages, but like, those things going online are difficult. Yeah. When you think of like the open doors, which people use Carvana truly buying online, maybe actually if those two business models will work, I guess will depend if a lot of it will shift. So it's an interesting thought experiment. So yeah, we have to get those people online. The big holdouts are like fashion items. People love to like try stuff on in store. They love to, you know, shoes, like anything requiring fit is kind of difficult because return logistics is so expensive. But yeah, those are the ones we still have to, we still have to solve. So one of the things I've always wondered about just e-com penetration increasing is in terms of these like uh, creator brands, influencer marketing, I've just wondered how that will shift things. And I know you've spent like a bunch of money on influencer stuff, not just paid, but I think you mentioned before you've done like 5,000 different influencers that you've worked with over the last couple of years. Is that true? Yeah, we've sponsored 5,000 individual influencers. Wow. How do you do that? It just sounds like a big proposition. We have a big team. So we have, I don't know, four US W2 employees working on it. And then we have probably 10 international contractors to help us get that done. Yeah, I think it's the coolest piece of marketing we do. It's a small mm. percentage of overall marketing budget, but this year we've we've probably spent three or four million dollars with creators. Why does it work? Do you think is there some kind of like psychological thing between partnering with a creator, embedding in the video, versus showing up in the Facebook feed or search based in Google? It's the only form of advertising that builds goodwill. Maybe sponsoring segments on TV for your favorite sports team could do the same thing, but people hate Facebook ads. Nobody wants, people hate YouTube pre-roll ads. People do not want you to interrupt their YouTube viewing experience with ads. It actually makes them dislike your brand. When you sponsor a creator, it's like, hey, 
you know, especially small creators, it's like, hey, you're watching me because you like me. And I'm very excited to say that we have our very first sponsorship. We did this. We're a team. We got this. And it's kind of like a, like a, like we did it moment, right? Like the creator got the bag. Fantastic. Yeah. You, you read the comments of those videos and the preview people are like, yo, congrats on the sponsor deal. Like you got the bag. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's less common to see those now, but like that was like a very early response is like, fuck yeah. Like the creator I like that I've been here day one, like I'm on their team, like we did it, or we got the Ridge Wallet money. <laughs> yeah. So do you see higher performance on those influencer marketing dollars and you do just typical paid spend? Yeah. I mean, this gets in the whole attribution question, right? So yeah, they do typically have a higher last click in North Beam per dollar spent. But the challenge is it's really easy to spend Facebook dollars. Anyone listening can spend $10 million today if they just type in $10 million in Facebook. <laughs> To spend, yeah. to spend $10 million on influencer ads is very difficult. That would take a team of 15 people or mm. you would tolerate really shitty results. Oh, really? Okay. Maybe you saw this tweet or it was a video. Mr. Beast was like, I can't even do these deals anymore because my reach is so big that none of these brands can really afford to pay a fair price. Have you seen that at all? Yeah. So there's a lot of competition in the 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 video range, right? Like this is views or dollars? Dollars spent per video. It's actually per view way cheaper to sponsor bigger creators just because there's very few brands who can tolerate a risk that big. Most creators, I mean, Mr. Beast is the only creator who can charge seven figures for an ad spot right? Any other creator, you can get a deal done for six figures, right? Which like celebrities, every celebrity wants seven figures. So it's still a better place to spend dollars just because there's way less competition at the very, very top, right? You know, we've done deals with PewDiePie or Marquez Brownlee or whatever else. And those deals, I mean, there's just very few brands who are willing to spend $100,000 on one piece of content, right? Because the amount of companies that spend money on YouTube, the amount of companies that have the budget to get that done is just very few. So what he talks about in that video, we've seen firsthand. And we've never worked directly with Mr. Beast. We've talked to people on his on Night Media's team a lot of times. We've worked with other creators on Night Media. We tried to work with Mr. Beast during probably 2020 or 2021. And we just, we needed videos to go live in a six week period and they just couldn't commit to it. They're like, our, our production schedule is so crazy that like, we just don't know when the upload will go live. So that's mm. why we didn't do that deal. So is that something you might run into a lot if you're doing a lot of influencer marketing is just lining up, you know, when the content hits with when you're kind of expecting and most people don't have that problem. Most people will can put a video out within a six week period or they'll work with you to get that done, right? Like for us, it's like, hey, if we're sponsored Mr. Beast, it needs to go live during Q4. It needs to go live from like November 15th to really December 15th, somewhere in there, the video has to go live. We opened up to early November just because we know it's special to get one of those videos. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, there's no fucking way we can commit to that. <laughs> Most <laughs> other people can. Most other people can can find the time. So then do you have any like advice frameworks? Like let's say I'm trying to do my first influencer marketing campaign. Like what should I look for? How do I evaluate? Like how to think about win-win for both sides? Can you just talk through us one of those scenarios? Just find someone who actually likes the brand or the product. That's the easiest way to get started is find people who are one-to-one -one matches with your niche. Understanding that doesn't, that doesn't scale, but when you learn to dance, you should dance with people who want to dance with you. Don't just jump into a fucking tango competition. Like, let's just slow down a little bit and just figure out like the way to get it done. So if you're in the home goods niche, find very small creators on YouTube, figure out how to work with them, approach them with a CPM deal that you're going to pay them. Don't approach them with affiliate deals. Nobody wants your affiliate deal. They're a dime a dozen. It's way better for them just to drive people to Amazon because people actually convert on Amazon. So it's like transparent on Amazon. They 
can track the whole thing, whatever. You have to give the money out of your pocket and just find a very small creator that you can learn the dialogue with. I wasn't going to ask about this, but you've had this hot take in the past. You're like, get on Amazon. Everyone should use Amazon. A lot of people say don't go on Amazon because, you know, they steal your customers or whatever. They'll steal your product. Yeah, that's uh, that's dumb. You should definitely be on Amazon. Uh, oh, because there's like 100 million customers there. Billions yeah, of people. That is a 2010 debate being like, is it Amazon or D2C? What should you do? It's like the war's over. Amazon has half of America shopping on Amazon every single day. It's like, if you're not there, someone else will get the customers. And being worried that Amazon's going to copy your stuff or whatever, they're, they're getting rid of their private label brands. It was a disaster for them. They lost money doing it because they can't charge themselves ads. They've realized it's just way better to have us compete with each other and us pay each other ads that the private label thing was actually a mistake and just made regulatory pressures that they didn't need. So that's all going away. Just give it, give Jeff Bezos your money, uh, just like you give Mark Z. That's true. And then you, and anyways, it makes it a what's after duopoly? You go monopoly, duopoly, oligopoly, I think it, it makes it's more competitive. There's more of these massive things that fight over your ad dollar. So it's it's good for the brands, right? Yeah. We're, we're officially in the America is oligopoly stage. So slightly more beneficial, I guess. Yeah. So you had, this is when I actually first reached out to you because I had always been kind of familiar with everything you guys are doing. You want to bring a creator in-house. You had this, I don't know if it was viral. I don't know what constitutes as viral, but it was a tweet that I thought was really interesting. Can you kind of explain your proposal and what you're trying to do? So you brought up, will creator brands force adoption quicker of online penetration? To throw it back to that earlier point you made. Yep. I don't think they're going to mm. be a needle mover of online shopping in general, but I do think creator brands pose a real threat to legacy players. Why is that? People like people. People shop from people. People watch people. We are a social species, right? If I like a creator and they make a, a fucking olive oil or whatever, I'm, if I'm actually a fan of what they do and I want to support them or whatever, I'm more likely to buy their olive oil than someone else's olive oil. So it's it's another way to stand out in commoditized spaces. And they have reach and awareness that we have to pay for. <laughs> it's like when Mr. Beast does a video, it gets 100 million views. For me to get 100 million views on YouTube, if I was just buying ad space or whatever, it cost me a million dollars or whatever, right? So they have built-in natural reach to, to promote their products. And I think Mr. Beast in Feastables is a great example. Now, the flip side is most creator products suck. Nothing against them. It's just they're not product experts. They're content experts, right? I mean, and Feastables does break the mold where they actually have a product that people like and enjoy and it's in Walmart or whatever else. But most creators just do merch or they do products that like have low margin because they don't understand the business of it. They don't have like a team designed to scale in the way you have to. Being a creator product does not mean you don't have to run ads. It just means you get to start on step three instead of step zero. So what are we trying to do? I would like to find a creator who knows how to make content, who knows how to build community, who knows how to speak to an audience, and I want to integrate them inside of Ridge. So I would like to confidently say Ridge is a creator brand. We don't have that skill, so I have to buy that skill. Everything is build or buy, right? There's only two things you can do, build or buy. I can try to build it, which... <laughs> I'm not going to be a, like, I'm not going to be a creator. I'm not you that likable. Yeah. You don't want to go do like TikTok dances or I don't have the energy or the charisma or anything like that. Right. I'm not going to be the creator. So we can't build it internally. We're going to have to buy it. So I'm willing to pay a creator. I'm willing to give them equity, have them come in as a consultant to help us get better at making short form content, mm -hmm. to help us build some sort of community. Also as like a, a face, like a repeatable person in our ads, because they have to be like, this is our company. This is my company. I'm a piece of it so that people yep. can identify them with it. 
So that's what we're trying to do. If you're a creator listening and you've made it 30 minutes into the podcast or whatever, you can DM me on Twitter. I got like 200 DMs, but I'm having like five or six serious conversations right now. We're trying to find like the perfect person. I have made an offer out there, so maybe the deal's gone, but the people I made the offer out to might be too busy. That's the other thing is creators want to do everything, right? So it can actually take a moment off to or a month off or three months off to come in there and actually integrate with our business. But that's what we're trying to do. And do you think a lot of people are going to do the same thing or these creator-driven brands? I think it makes a ton of sense. I do think like organic social internal companies will become, you know, table stakes, right? Like people point to Scrub Daddy or Duolingo or whatever, like they're reaching consumers through organic content way more than their paid ads. It's kind of a one trick pony, kind of like the Wendy's account, like, oh dude, the Wendy's account roasted me, right? It's like- Great reply, trolling trolling (laughs) Pepsi or McDonald's or whatever. Yeah. And like, you know, when every brand starts doing that, it ends up start being annoying. And then you have the meme, silence brand, right? Like brand, get out of here. There's a way that it'll have to be done authentically. But I do think hmm. the the most interesting place to watch organic social in the future is brands integrating creators. You've said before you think that influencer marketing has peaked. Do you still think that? Yeah, but that's a very, there's a ton of layers to that. The way platforms work are changing. So there's less opportunity for influencers. The reality is, and all the data points to this, there's more people creating content than ever before. And there's more people with less monetary incentive creating content than ever before. When brands start becoming their own influencers, like the Wendy's or whatever, or when there's part-time influencers, like my wife's, my wife's an influencer. She has 50,000 followers on TikTok, right? She's not doing it full, like she's not doing it to make an income, right? Or she's just doing it because she's fun and she likes, she likes having fun with it or whatever. So there's more competition on the content side. And then we've reached peak saturation and viewership, right? Like mm-hmm. long form content on YouTube consumption is probably going to go down and they're shifting the way the algorithm works to favor A plus creators, which are Mr. Beast and then brand new creators or very small creators. The mm-hmm. entire industry is niching down because of TikTok, because of for you content. It wants to just show you the 10 things that you are going to absolutely love. So it's just a really difficult time to be a creator. So because of that, creators are getting less views. Because they're getting less views, there's less dollars going into the, the influencer ecosystem. And as paid media gets better again, right, as Facebook and YouTube figures out how to live in an iOS world, less dollars will go into influencers, I think. So I think it's a difficult mm-hmm. time. If you're relying on brand sponsorships, I think they're going to be harder and harder to get in the future. I think the interesting thing I saw too was, I don't even know how to describe this, the crypto effect. I saw a lot of interesting things being done by the crypto companies in kind of the peak. Yeah, they fucked it up for us. I mean, at the end of 2021 into 2022, we pulled back a lot of our influencer spend just because FTX was spending an insane amount money that didn't make sense. And now in retrospect, we know it was stolen funds, but like they would give a thousand dollar CPM and we're like, it, it doesn't work. I'm sorry, creator. And the creator's like, Hey, my videos were $50,000 now. I'm like, they're not. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you this. They're paying that. We can't. And and we so we pulled out of a lot of deals just because they didn't make sense. In retrospect, it was stolen funds. And now those people are coming back to us. There's still a lot of price memory where they want a lot more money for their videos. But we are one of the few sponsors left standing. In 2023, most people have pulled out all influencer budgets. We've activated more influencers in the past six months than ever before, just because our numbers stayed consistent. This is how much we pay because we know it works. We sign a lot of people, and then when their expectations break it, we don't sign anybody. And then when they're coming back down, we sign them again. So that's that's the the way the market works for us. You're like a value investor, but you're a marketer, like a value marketer. And we've had people we've sponsored for three plus years who who love the relationship and love working with us and. 
you know, some people don't. So, yeah, well, that's one thing to think about, I guess, as a creator is almost like retention. Let's say you and me, you know, I'm, I'm working with Ridge. I don't have to go out and find new sponsors. You know, I integrate you into my content and I work with you for like 10 years. And like, I never had to find a new customer because you paid me a hundred K a year and it worked. And that's actually not very many people talk about how fucking hard it is to get sponsors as a creator. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. And also like now that there's audience pushback on bad sponsors, it's like, oh shit. Okay. Ridge is a real company. They're not scamming anybody. Like, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll work with them. It's just a wallet. Like there's not, hopefully the wallet is good quality. Actually on that note, you have like these reviews on your website. One of them, I think a guy got shot with a bullet. The wallet protected him. Someone almost cut themselves with a chainsaw, but like the wallet saved them. Are those real reviews? Yeah, there's a, you, people can Google this. There was a police officer in Illinois who was in a shootout with a, I think the guy was a murderer. Like, I think he was like a sex criminal or something. And the police officer shot and killed this this person, but the guy was shooting him and the police officer got shot like four times. And the police officer said this, the doctor said this, that he would have died if he didn't have his Ridge wallet on him. The way that the bullet hit him, like it would have went into his intestines and killed him or whatever, but the wallet stopped it. So that's it. That really fucking happened. And, you know, maybe we should make wallet body armor or something. Yeah, ridge armor. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it actually really, really common, the chainsaw thing. I mean, it happens every two weeks. So if you are watching this and you're using you're going to use a chainsaw, they make special pants that you're supposed to wear with a chainsaw that has like fabric. So like the chainsaw mm. won't go into your leg because they kick back all the time. Buy those pants, dude, because literally every two weeks, someone's like, the wallet saved my leg. Imagine all the people that, the wa- they don't have the wallet. <laughs> like, chainsaws are dangerous. I won't use one. I think I've only used one one time, and it was like, they're cool machines, but yeah, don't want to be using them too often. Do you have a founder or CEO or maybe business or maybe one or two, any that you really look up to? Yeah, I mean, the way that we run our company is the same, is the guy, Matt McCary. He has a book called The Great CEO Within. He's like a CEO coach. It's the only business book I've ever read or recommend, but it's very good. There's no fluff. It's just straightforward. Like, this is how you should structure things, and these are the best ways for, for outcomes. He's probably the guy I look up to the most. Yeah, and then like for learning, uh, Logan Bartlett has the best podcast besides this one that I'm on right now. And then for like co-CEOs or brands that I'm close to that like, I mean, I don't, I don't have like a, a coach necessarily, but I'm in like a bunch of group texts with Jeremy from Kitsch, David from Mary Ruth Organics, Todd from Planet Art. Then all the guys in my podcast with Jason, Matt, Mike, like they all have amazing businesses, all doing nine mm-hmm. figures, all profitably. None of them raise money. So like we just kind of coach each other. Like that's how like I find the best businesses and the best advice as quickly as possible. And what's your podcast called again? Is it the Operators Podcast? Is that what it's called? Correct. You should go check it out. Also check out Logan's. Logan Bartlett's podcast is very good too. Dude, nobody listens to it. I tell everyone to listen to it. I've DM'd Logan Bartlett about this. It's like, it's criminal. He got like 4,000 listeners. <laughs> like the Nelk boys, no, no offense against them. They have a million listeners. I'm like, Logan Bartlett has Daniel Eck from Spotify in a two-hour interview that's unfiltered. Like, go listen to that. It'll change the way you run your company. Yeah. So do you have a favorite, I guess, interview question then when you're hiring and adding to the team? Anything you really focus on? I mostly ask, why don't you want to do the thing you're doing right now? And mm. like, we should spend a lot of time talking about what, what, what makes you dissatisfied with your current position or what are you actually looking forward to change and try not to get all the bullshit interview answers. Like I'm just looking for the next great opportunity. It's like, no, no, like leaving sucks. Why are you actually leaving? Is it money? <laughs> Is it, do you not like your boss? Like, why don't you like your boss? Like really digging on that. 
most people can do most jobs. And that's, I mean, I don't think there's anything special about what I do or what anybody else does. I think most people given the opportunity can do most jobs if they're willing to rise up to it. But like understanding the motivation why somebody wants to leave, I think is really, really important. Is there anything specific? Like, do you guys hire for slope at Ridge? Do you hire for like previous experience? How do you think about that? Yeah. All I care about is what was your exact last job? And do I think that last job helps you do this job better? I don't know where anyone went to college. Like, I can't tell you. <laughs> I'm just like, what were you do? What was the exact last thing you were doing? And is that a skill I need? So that's what hmm. we look for. Interesting. Yeah. I don't think we've got that answer before on the show. I like that one. What is the most successful company that you know of that no one else talks about? I think some people know about this company, but Mary Ruth Organics, my friend David runs it. Amazing company, several hundred million a year in revenue, amazing subscription business, really helping kids get vitamins, like a, mu- a bunch of cool stuff tied to it. That's an amazing business. And then this guy doesn't want me talking about him, but Todd at Planet Art, all I'll say is one of the best operators on earth. He does not want any publicity. He, he has a mm. burner Twitter account. You cannot have any more information, but one of the best businesses on earth. I won't follow up on that one. What was the other one called? Planet Ruth? No, no. Ma- uh, Mary Ruth. And what is that? Is subscription kids medicine vitamins. or vitamins? Okay. Yeah. My daughters love their vitamins. Every morning they like ask. It's just like gummies. It's like candy to them. They love it. Yeah. Yeah. Kids love that shit. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have any questions for me at all or anything? It's a new question I've been asking the last couple of shows. Why do you do the podcast? Because it's fun. You get to meet cool people. Would you have spent an hour and a half talking to me if I didn't have a podcast? Probably not. Yeah, we could find a way to get that done. Yeah, it's also, I mean, as a venture capitalist investing in startups, you need to do some form of content marketing. And this is the one, I guess I use Twitter a decent amount, but this is just one that I think made a lot of sense for me. It's fun. I like doing it. What was the last investment you did? I invested in one earlier this week which I just don't know if I'm allowed to talk about yet. I just don't know what they want. The last public one, it's a company called Browse, browse browse.ai. There's no AI involved in the product. I don't know. He's had that domain for a while. But what it is, is it's a web scraper that doesn't use any coding. So if you've ever done any web scraping, you probably use Python and maybe you have like an engineering team that sets it all up. This one, it's a similar concept to Zapier where it's just like anyone can use it, no code. You basically just like click some things on the website and it just runs these automatic web scrapers. It's a combination of pretty simple, but also works really well. So he just has a lot of directions he wants to take it. It was profitable. So, you know, it's a weird, weird venture investment but it kind of fit in the bucket of a lot of things I like to look for. Sick, man. Well, thanks for answering my questions. Thank you for coming to the Sean Frank podcast. I'll talk to everybody <laughs> later. Yeah. Um, make sure you check out Sean's other podcast, The Operators. Make sure you check out Ridge Wallet if you need a wallet. And uh, thank you, Sean, for coming on. It's been awesome. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into The Peel. A quick housekeeping note. The next episode is a special one, and we had to line it up with a specific announcement on Sunday, September 10th. The timing means we're technically skipping a week, but it's a longer episode, and I think you'll like the inside look at how someone built a very special business in Silicon Valley. If you want to miss this episode, subscribe to the newsletter in the show notes, and you'll get it in your inbox the moment it drops. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks to Sean for coming on to talk about Ridge. And check out PacSmith if you want to upgrade your 3PL. See everyone next time.